Hi, and thanks so much for the opportunity to be here and to speak today. Um, we were just saying, I think, I've never spoken anywhere quite so grand. We were in a talk yesterday and someone said, can we turn down the chandelier? I don't know about you, but that's not something I hear every day. Um, so, yeah, it's a real privilege to be here and to be speaking. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm doing a PhD with the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine based at Nottingham University. And within that PhD, we're looking at methods for conducting clinical trials in small animal first opinion practice. Um, but some of the stuff we're doing could equally apply quite well to equine or farm practice, so please don't feel excluded if that's your, your world. Um, so I'm looking at um, ways to ask the right questions, ways to measure the questions when we come to address them clinically, what outcomes we should measure, and ways to measure those outcomes in practice. But what I really want to talk to you about today um, is the, uh, the Veterinary Clinical Trials Network. Um, so we're gonna, just going to introduce to you briefly... Um, just to set the scene, what the network is and what it looks like, um, and then kind of go back a few steps and say, okay, so we have this network, but why I think it's important um, and why I hope you will as well. Um, something about the evidence we already have in practice, something about the ways that evidence isn't always um, applicable to our patients, and then more again then on the clinical trials network and an opportunity for you, perhaps as a practicing vet, perhaps as someone in a PMS or perhaps as a researcher, to join us and to get involved. Um, so, what is this, this veterinary clinical trials network? It's essentially a network of veterinary practices, um, the normal first opinion veterinary practices within the UK. Some of them do referral work as well. Um, some are small, some are mixed, um, and they're spread all over the country. Um, and then that symbol in the middle represents us as a centre. And they're a group of practices that are happy to work with us and to contribute their patient data to us for clinical research. Um, the arrows you'll see go both ways. So they're happy to contribute data to us, and we are very happy to feed information about that data back to them. Um, we definitely think practice-based research should be a two-way street. So we're in no way saying, as researchers, we want to take all your lovely data and run away with it and do nice things and never come back to you. What we're saying is, your data can help us, and then we can help you, and we can feed that data back to you. So it's definitely very much a two-way street. Um, so what we're doing with this network of practices is we're establishing our methods for running prospective trials, um, clinical trials in veterinary practice, and pragmatic clinical trials, realistic clinical trials that work on the ground. Um, and we're mostly working with first opinion patient data. Um, it's been really refreshing, actually, over the past two days, um, really encouraging for me, because I feel that um, a lot of the speakers previously have set the scene really nicely. Um, so we've had Steve Budsberg right at the beginning of the conference saying we need to make participation in practice-based research easy. Um, and I think this is a real way we can make participation in research really easy for practitioners being part of this network. Um, he was also talking about um, are the outcomes we measure in clinical trials good? Do they matter? Um, and this is something we're working on as well. Um, so with this network of practice practices, we ask the vets and we ask their clients to help us figure out what research things we should be prioritising, what things Rachel's already um, touched on her work on cats with kidney disease. Um, we've also got some projects um, running at the moment looking at dogs with osteoarthritis, what's important for the owners of those dogs, what's important for the vets that treat those dogs. So we're looking at asking the right questions, prioritising the right things. Um, we're then looking at um, how do we measure, how do we sort of measure a difference um, for those patients, so what outcomes should we measure in trials. And again, the vets... Um, and the um, owners in those networks will be contributing to that work as well. Um, and then there'll be participation in actual trials. And it's more the trials side I'm going to focus on during this talk. Um, so, and Rachel's already, already touched on this and introduced it really nicely, but um, 
what we're talking about is making evidence-based decisions in veterinary practice. So this is the, uh, the definition that we use in the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. So we're talking about the use of the best relevant evidence in conjunction with our clinical expertise um, as practitioners. So our experience of what these patients typically present like, how they typically respond to treatment, what typically works or doesn't, to make good decisions for our veterinary patients. But it's not just about our experience and it's not just about the evidence. Those two things are part of a whole bigger picture because we also have to consider our owners. Um, we need to consider what their priorities are, what their values are, perhaps what their budget is, um, perhaps which treatments they're physically capable of giving to the patients, perhaps what their lifestyle is. Are they out all day? Can they be tableting a cat five, six times a day? And we also need to think about our veterinary patients themselves. Um, how compliant are they going to be with the treatments that we want to give them? How can we actually get treatments into those patients? Um, anyone who's worked with cats, some cats can be quite tricky to tablet, and some dogs can be as well. So these are all things we need to think about when we're choosing treatments and we're choosing management strategies for our patients. And I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted very much. Um, I'm sure you're all aware of that. Um, but this kind of thing, this kind of decision-making is something that as veterinary practitioners um, or researchers, we're doing all the time. We're making evidence-based decisions every day, sometimes every five minutes, sometimes every ten minutes for our patients. Um, and there's a whole lot of things we need to think about that come into, into these decision-making. But what we want to do is, is make good decisions. So thinking about the evidence part of that decision-making process, just thought we'd start with a, a case example. So this is Bill. Um, she's one of my parents' cats. Um, she is called Bill. She is a girl. She's a, a classic cat with a gender-confused name. Um, I'd like to point out, I did not um, sex her when she was a kitten. This was before my veterinary training, so it's not my fault that we thought she was a boy. Um, so please don't read anything onto Liverpool University's training for that. Um, so she's around 15 years old now, um, and she's been diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. She's an active cat. She's outdoors a lot. She hunts a lot. Um, she sometimes eats the food we give her. Sometimes she doesn't. If I say she's difficult to medicate, I'm being generous. <laughs> I think my brother still has some scars from the last time he tried to give her a worming tablet. Um, and when my parents take her in to see the vet, um, what the vet talks to them about is what their priorities are for her as a cat, as an outdoor cat, as an active cat. What are we interested in for Bill, um, for her kind of outcomes that are going to help us make um, the decisions about how we apply the evidence to, to treating her. So my parents are very much interested more in quality of her life rather than quantity of her life. They want her to live a, a sh potentially a shorter, uh, good life rather than a longer life where she's unhappy. They want her to still be outdoors. For them, a cat is a cat if she's outdoors and living an active lifestyle. They don't really want to be putting any medication into her because it's, it's difficult and dangerous. Um, so sort of that's her kind of, uh, her kind of setup, her kind of scenario. Um, and what we might find um, when we go to look at the evidence is that perhaps some of the things that are important to my parents and important to Bill in her life haven't quite been addressed in the research that we get. So we might find some, some research that um, has some lovely treatments and has a lot of really good advice on those treatments, it doesn't answer the questions that my parents will have, which is, but how's her quality of life going to be affected? Will she still be able to hunt if I put her on this food? If I give her this food, but she only eats it every other day because she's hunting on the alternate days, is the food still going to do what it should do? Is it still going to help her? Um, so as her vet, you go away, you, you have a look at the literature, and you say, okay, what kind of evidence can I find about treatments, about management strategies, about ways we can look after Bill to, um, to help support her and help her live a a good life and the kind of life that she enjoys. So um, we heard um, already from Sebastian Alt about the staircase of evidence and 
with some, more, some of us are very familiar with the pyramid of evidence. Um, and depending on exactly what our question is about Bill and about her treatment um, and about her management, any of the pieces of evidence from any of the levels of the, of the pyramid or the staircase could be useful to us. So we know that higher up the staircase is higher levels of evidence. Um, we know that the overlap with the truth varies depending on which stage of the, uh, of the staircase that we're at. But any of these forms of evidence might be relevant to her. So um, potentially for looking at a, a treatment regime, ideally we want a well-designed randomised controlled trial to help us answer um, whether treatment A or treatment B is going to be best for her. Um, if we want to know a little bit more about her risk factors for developing the disease in the first place or her risk factors um, for her ongoing lifestyle, we might look more at um, a cohort study. Um, it may be if there was nothing like that available, if she was the first cat to ever be diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, something like a case report might help us if we found one other cat. So she would be the second, sorry, if we'd found one other cat that had already been diagnosed with the disease. And if she's the second ever, then we can compare those two. So I guess what I'm trying to explain is that all, all levels of this evidence could be useful um, to Bill and to her management decisions and her treatment decisions, um, but it depends exactly what our question is. And then we need to know, with this evidence, uh, what the limitations of it are um, and how much of it is available. So we'll just concentrate um, on randomised control trials and cohort studies for the purposes of this presentation. So again, probably everybody in the room knows about randomised control trials and what they look like, but just a quick refresher for those that perhaps are more new to it. Um, what we're talking about is a population of patients, a bit like Bill, um, population of cats that are then randomised into a treatment group and a control group, or a treatment group and another treatment group. And we follow them through and we're measuring a particular outcome. So it might be length of life on the treatment or it might be quality of life on the treatment or it might be um, proteinuria or blood pressure. Um, and what makes a randomised trial effective um, is that because we've randomised cats into two groups, hopefully we know that the only difference between the two groups of cats on the two treatments is the treatments that they're on rather than anything else inherent in the cats which would bias our study results. So hopefully if we've randomised a good representative population of cats, we end up with um, yeah, cats fairly equally distributed between the two groups, so we don't have all the old cats on the treatment and all the young cats not on the treatment, or something like that. Um, so hopefully, if we have a well-designed randomised control trial, we know that any effect that we see in the outcomes of those two groups is down to the treatment that we've given and not down to anything else that we've missed in our study design. If we were thinking a little bit more about um, risk factors for her continuing lifestyle, or we might be thinking about... Um, how she's got to this um, position in the first place, we might want to run a co ev one evidence sorry, from a cohort study. So we'd have a, a population of cats that are exposed to something particular. Maybe we had a theory that being exposed to a particular, um, particular outdoor environment, so maybe being exposed to ponds causes cats kidney disease problems. It, it doesn't, it's just an example. So we might look at cats who have ponds in their garden versus cats who don't have ponds in their garden and see how many of them develop particular characteristics of a disease compared to those that don't have ponds in their garden. So that would then give us an idea, we'll just give that one, um, about how much having a pond in your garden affected your um, potential to develop kidney disease or develop a particular condition. So those are the kind of things, just to make sure we're all kind of up to speed on randomised control trials and cohort studies. That's a very, very brief, very kind of high-level look at those. Um, so we've gone away. We've got Bill. She's got kidney disease. We want to make some treatment decisions for her. We've found some published evidence. We've actually found some evidence about the kind of treatments or diets that we're interested in, um, which is great. And then we come to read the papers, um, which have the published evidence in. And all, just to be clear, all uh, research, all published evidence has limitations. I'm not saying that um, 
this is a particular case where we have limitations. All research has limitations in some way. And as long as we understand the limitations and the strengths of the research that we're reading, then we can apply it well to our patients. Um, so common limitations that we find um, in the veterinary world when we're looking at evidence for treatment efficacy or evidence for, um, for risk factors. Things like funding and involvement, again, to be clear, um, I have um, no problem with any particular groups of people funding different types of research. But we just need to make sure when we're reading a paper that if it looks like somebody's um, funded some, some work that we're reading, we need to make sure that we're aware how, how that might have influenced the work or just, just to be really clear about um, how involved people that funded work are with the design of the work. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't read those papers. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be interested in that work at all. It's more about um, just kind of clarity about um, how people who funded the work are involved with the work um, or not involved with the work. Um, Sometimes the, uh, the experimental, envi experimental environment's a bit too perfect. So we have um, some of the work we might look at would have cats in a research institution where they never get out, they never, they never go and do something um, that they shouldn't do, they're not eating things off the floor that they shouldn't do, they're not doing anything that would otherwise affect their care and the way that their disease progresses. We might have papers that don't measure the same outcomes that we're interested in. So we might have a paper that talks about how long Bill's going to live when she's on a particular diet, but it doesn't tell us anything about how good her quality of life will be while she's on that particular diet. So it's very good research, but it doesn't quite answer the question that I'm coming in with, which is what can we treat Bill with? Um, sometimes we have proxy endpoints used. Um, so what we mean by that is things like um, if we can't measure what we're really interested in, so um, perhaps if we're looking at stress while they're on a particular treatment, we might have um, a measurement of cortisol instead of stress itself, because sometimes it's hard to measure what we want to measure. Um, but sometimes they don't represent fully what the questions that we're asking. Uh, sometimes the studies aren't as well designed as we'd like. And sometimes the study population, so the cats right back in that first bubble, if we think back to the randomised control trial slide, the group of cats in that bubble right at the beginning, sometimes those cats don't really represent Bill. They just represent cats in a research institute. So what ways might it be that the cats in a, in a paper um, about treatment efficacy that might help Bill might not quite represent Bill? So a lot of research um, comes out of, um, that we have published now, comes out of referral work. It's really good research, but, um, and I think someone touched on this already on Tuesday, we need to be careful about how much we take research from the referral environment and apply it to our patients in first opinion practice. This graph's taken from some work previously done at the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. Um, this is one of my colleagues, uh, Natalie Robinson, and she observed 2,000, yes, 2,000 veterinary consultations and um, took very detailed data from all of those. Of all the patients that she saw, we had 0.3% of those patients actually being referred. Um, so compared to the, I'm sure you agree, that's a very small proportion compared to all of the patients that she saw. So if we take that to be um, hopefully representative of the wider first opinion population at large, we need to be a bit careful about how we take work from the referral population and apply it directly to first opinion patients. Um, it may be that patients in the papers that we read um, didn't develop the disease naturally. It may have been experimentally induced. It may be that they've only concentrated on a single breed of patients. Um, it may be that they're a particular age. Maybe they're quite young. Maybe they're quite old. Maybe they only had kidney disease. So maybe they didn't have hypothyroidism as well. Maybe they didn't have blood pressure problems as well. And maybe they were just really good at taking the medication, unlike Bill. So the patients in the papers that we're reading might not fully represent Bill. So we can end up in a little bit of a situation like this. Um, so these look, these are the wrong trousers, and they look like trousers, and they've got some really good special features. And if we use those trousers in the way that they were designed to be used, 
then we can do some really special things. But if we just blindly put them on without thinking about what they might do, we might end up being taken somewhere we didn't really want to go, and we might end up with some outcomes that we weren't really looking for. So it's just about being, um, being careful about how we, how we apply the evidence that we've got. So if we're thinking specifically um, about if we wanted to design, design our own study and we wanted to design an ideal study population, I think an ideal study population might look a little bit like this. There would be more than five cats in an ideal study population, obviously. Um, but we've got a mixture here. We've got some pure breeds. We've got some moggies. We've got some scared cats, some confident cats, some cats that will eat anything you put in front of them, some cats that really won't. Um, mix of ages, mix of lifestyles. So what would be really nice would be if we could do some research with these cats, because any evidence we get about these cats is going to be very similar to the kind of evidence we need to apply to Bill, because Bill's a cat a bit like one of these cats. So where are they? They're everywhere. They're all over the UK. Um, and uh, somebody talked on Tuesday about the gold mine of, um, of data on a, that exists in veterinary practice within the uh, patient record. And I completely agree with that. So we know these cats are everywhere. They're all over. They're not just in the UK. They're all over the world. Um, and every day, veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses are seeing these patients, they're treating these patients, and they're collecting information on them every day. So we know what we want. We want to get uh, data about this ideal study population. We know where they are. They're all over the UK. We know the data has been collected in the patient record. Great. So far, so good. But what can we do with that? So we... As often in evidence-based veterinary medicine, we look to the evidence-based medicine. We look to our human um, medicine colleagues. And in human medicine, there's, um, I'm just going to mention two, but there's several really, really good, really powerful initiatives looking at using patient-based, first opinion, practice-based data for research. So there are the two I want to mention, the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, which is a, a massive database of primary care records. They've been collecting for some time, as you can see. Um, and they... Um, they're funded by the National Institute for Health Research um, and the Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. And they've been involved in all sorts of, um, of projects, including drug utilisation, pharmacovigilance, and clinical trials. So there's a lot we can learn from them. So we know it's possible. And there's another example. So the Thin Database, the Health Improvement Network. Um, and they've got over 11 million patient records, representing about 5%, 6% of the UK population. And they've run a lot of um, observational trials, um, cohort trials case and case control trials, um, looking at all sorts of things to do with human health. So we know it's possible. We know it works well in human medicine. Um, the thin database especially was a, a collaboration between uh, software, um, the GP's um, practice management software, and researchers. So we know this, this kind of thing can be done. And what's great is there's a big project to be done and there are loads and loads of people in veterinary research that are interested in this and that are working with this in some way. So this is a small selection of a lot of groups that do a lot of really, really good stuff in first opinion, um, companion animal research and equine research and this farm as well. So there's all sorts. These are just a few examples. So we've got um, React. So anybody who's um, working with horses might be familiar with the the REACT campaign, which has um, come out of work funded by Nottingham University and the British Horse Society, which is about educating owners about the early signs of colic, and that's been very much first opinion um, practice-based. We've got RTVS knowledge, of course, um, that need no introduction. Um, we've got um, Vet Compass, and we heard um, very eloquently already on over the last couple of days about all the things that Vet Compass do, looking at coding um, and looking at um, surveillance and risk factors. We've got SAVSNET, um, who have got several projects running, one looking at um, diagnoses in the Henry Consult and clinical science that are seen, one looking at um, lab-based work, and more work looking at antimicrobial resistance. 
and they have a, a massive wealth of data that they then um, feed back to the practices that are involved in working with them. Um, we've got the Thoroughbred Health Network, which is an initiative um, in the equine world again, looking at, um, yeah, looking at uh, bringing um, the research that already exists to be more available to, um, to racehorses and uh, people working as racehorses. We've got the Banfield Group, and I think they were already mentioned on Tuesday as well, um, gathering information on their own patients and feeding that information back to their own practices. So what's really encouraging to me is there's a, there's a massive job to be done in dealing with all the data from first opinion practice and all the data generally in, in evidence-based veterinary medicine. And what's really encouraging to me is that there's so many people that are involved. And I really think um, if everybody does a bit and we're all working on slightly different things, then we can really achieve something really special. Um, so what kind of things are people using data for? I've probably already got ahead of myself and covered this. So um, looking at surveillance, um, feedback data to the practices they're involved with, looking at risk factors, looking at prescribing practices. So there's lots of people doing lots of really, really good stuff. Um, just to highlight a little bit what we've been doing at the centre. So previous to me starting at the centre, um, there was a PhD that finished in 2014. Um, and some work from this has... Um, has just been published. The work's just out in BMC Veterinary Research, if you want to have a look. The reference is really tiny there, but you can see the slides afterwards, I hope. Um, so this was to develop something called a clinical evidence schema. Um, and I'll go into a little bit more detail about what that is in a moment. Um, but this is um, something that was developed um, by Julie during her thesis, and it's, it's like a, a set of rules which... Um, say a sort of a set of instructions if you will saying this is the kind of data that we need to take out for um for clinical research uh, from the patient record um they use a common language called xml um the techie people in the room will understand that a little bit more than i perhaps but um we use something called xml because it helps to resolve compatibility between systems so this schema is basically a list of instructions which will draw data out of any system any practice management software system and convert it into a format um, like a plain text format, so a format that we can combine easily so we can take data from three or four different or as, as many different practice management software systems and combine it into one place. Um, it was developed in conjunction with a practice management software system and they've proved 100% accuracy in data extraction. So what that means is all of the data that was written in the software system was successfully extracted by the schema and got to us at the centre, so we don't lose anything along the way, essentially. Uh, it's really efficient and it's a really accurate way of getting data out of practice so what do we want to use it for so um, there's plenty of people working in surveillance and they're doing a really great job so that's not something that we're working with what we want to use this data for is to run studies to answer very specific questions about treatment and about risk factors um, and use um, we're going to use data from existing publications from existing sources to make sure that um, the studies that we do are sufficiently powered so we've got enough patients in them um, so that we know that we're answering questions well and we're well designed we're working with a lot less practices than some of the bigger initiatives are. Um, and we don't take data all the time like some of them do. We just take data intermittently when we're doing clinical trials. And the really key part about what we do is um, free, dealing with the free text. Um, so I believe we were one of the first groups to start looking at the free text part of the clinical record. So um, thinking back to when you're in practice, you've got your, your consultation notes on the computer, and the free text is just the big box where you basically write everything about the patient, about what you're doing, and about what you're seeing. Um, so taking that part of the clinical record and, um, yeah, and, and working with that. And I'll come back to that a little bit more in, in a moment. So essentially what happens, the patient will see the vet. The vet puts the information into the practice management software system in the computer. And then the data comes to us at the centre. And 
we use the schema to do that and the data is delivered to us daily or weekly. We error check it. The practice doesn't have to do anything. So as far as the, once it's set up and running, as far as the practice is concerned, the data is just delivered to us regularly. Um, they don't need to worry about whether or not it's sending. We will check whether it's arriving. Uh, we have a system to do um, errors in delivery or, or errors in incompleteness of records. And um, yeah, that's essentially what happens. It's very simple. Um, but it's not just one vet um, and it's not just one um, practice management software system. We've got lots of different... So we've got within, a, within one veterinary practice, we'll have lots of computers and there'll be more than one practice and more than one practice will use a particular practice management software system. And the beauty of the method that we use is that we can use data from more than one practice management software system coming all the way to us at the center. So what data exactly are we taking? So this is the, the, the detail more really of the schema. So this is all the data that we think we need to do practice-based clinical trials, essentially in small animal practice. So we've got an identifier for the practice, an identifier for the pet, an identifier for what sort of species it is, what kind of breed, uh, the gender status, the neuter status, notable conditions um, is to do with things like ongoing problems, say diabetes, hypothyroidism. Uh, marks um, is a field that some, some of the practices fill in to do with um, allergies. Deceased, it's important to know whether our patients are still alive. Um, we're less interested at the computer end in whether or not they're dangerous um, because they're not going to bite me through the computer, but it's something that we do take because it might impact whether or not they can um, be given particular treatments, whether or not they're insured. Uh, we don't take who they're insured with, but just whether or not they're insured, date of birth, body weight, and you can read the rest for yourself. Um, so those are the kind of the, the patient things that we take. And then we take the, these de details about the consultation. So we take the date of consultation, the time, um, who put the data in, uh, consultation notes. So from that big box of free text where you write everything about the veterinary consultation, uh, diagnosis if made, and if the practice is using venom coding, um, we download that data as well. Um, this logo at the bottom, the VetXML Consortium, um, this is, for those that aren't familiar, this is a group of... Um, of all sorts. So there's practice management software companies in there, there's practicing vets in there, there are research groups in there, there's insurance companies in there, uh, microchip companies in there. And it's a group that um, have been established since 2006 and they work together to ensure um, rapid transfer of electronic data between all different things to do in the veterinary profession. So rapid transfer of, you may be familiar with a microchip um, registration schema, you may be familiar with a computer system that you have within your practice now where you can send insurance details through. So those would be the ones you might perhaps be more familiar with, but um, the VetXML consortium are in charge of standardizing the sort of the computer language that does that. Um, so it's with their help um, and with help of a practice management software system that um, Julie and others at the center were able to establish this, this schema, which is this list of basically a wish list of this is all the data we'd like from the patients that we can use for clinical, uh, for clinical trials. Really important though to say that the data we're taking Okay, so we have a vet ID, we have an animal ID, we have a practice ID. These are numbers. These aren't names. So I don't know that it's Fred the vet treating Fluffy the cat or Fido the dog. I know it's vet 2 uh, treating animal 3 at practice 24. And that's really, really important um, for the vets that we work with. Um, so, yeah, just to reassure anybody that was, that was interested in that. So, you've seen the big list of all the data that we take. Um, and I've talked a little bit about the fact that we take the, the free text from the patient record... And what do we then do with this massive, massive piece of text? So those that have worked in practice will know, or those that have looked at data from practice will know, you end up with a really large chunk of data um, talking about um, what the animal presented with and what the differentials might have been and uh, the fact that 
um, it was off its food yesterday and maybe we're going to do this test and maybe we're going to do that test. And it's a massive amount of information. It's a massive amount of data to get the information you need out of. Um, and the most efficient way of getting out the data that we need is text mining. Uh, there are lots of groups doing lots of really great work on text mining, some with different softwares. Um, so there's software like WordStat, there's software like WordSmith. Um, there's already some published work in the veterinary world looking at text mining to, um, to identify cases of enteric syndrome. Um, there's lots of different ways of doing it. One really key way is the work that um, Jenny Newman and colleagues are doing at SAVSNet, which is to um, develop um, effectively write codes within something called Python, which is basically like writing a, a little instruction to the computer saying, go and find me cases of, of this, um, but in this context. So thinking back to Bill, the stuff that, um, that Jenny and colleagues are writing would say, go and find me cases where the vet talks about kidney disease, but not where the vet says it's not kidney disease. So if we just went and looked for kidney disease, we'd got, this cat has kidney disease, I think this cat has kidney disease, and this cat definitely doesn't have kidney disease. Those are all three of the kind of things that we might get back. But the work that Jenny's doing is to say, it's very clever because it says, go look for patients with, that talk about kidney disease in their notes, but also where they say it has kidney disease, or not where it says it doesn't have kidney disease. So um, it's, a lot of, um, it's a lot of work, but it's, it essentially identifies very, very specifically and very sensitively the exact kind of cases that we're interested in. Um, there's a group of us that um, like to get together and share experiences and to, um, to problem solve and to help each other figure out the best ways of, of finding our patients um, and what the kind of best ways of text mining the data that we have are. And if you're a vet in practice or a researcher and you've got data and you're thinking, well, actually, that sounds like something I could use, um, do grab me at the end. Um, we've got a workshop coming up at the end of November where we're just going to get together as a group and hopefully inspire each other and hopefully collaborate um, on some of this text mining work. And uh, Jenny and colleagues will be there as well. Um, so, yeah, do get in touch with me if you're interested in that. So we talked on Tuesday about um, how practice-based research really doesn't want to interfere with normal veterinary work, and the way that we take, our, we take our data doesn't either. So the data we take comes automatically, and we take all the things for that list. There's no time input on a day-to-day basis required from vets or nurses. Um, we don't change the normal data that people are putting in. We're not asking for anything extra. We're happy for vets to just record everything they normally would record. Then we use our schema, our wish list, um, to take all of that data and put it into our database, and then we can work with it. So it's really easy for people to contribute, and it's easy for us to track, and it's easy to us, for us to know if, if something's gone missing along the way. Because we're working with quite a wide network of practices now, we're able to work with enough patients that when we start running clinical trials, our trials will be suitably powered, and the patients in our trials will represent patients like Bill. Um, and then the evidence we produce will strengthen the evidence base to help practitioners. Important to mention the ethics, of course, so this project has received ethical approval. Um, and... Patients, um, clients don't have to contribute. So we've only ever had one client opt out, but there is an, an option to opt out through the software system that the practice use um, so that if people don't want their animals' data to contribute to research, they absolutely don't have to. And once they've opted out, we never take their data again. Um, the way we do the, the ethics of the opt-out system, we have posters we would display in a veterinary waiting room that say who we are, what data we're taking, when we're taking it, um, and that you can opt out if you want to. Um, and it's very, very simple within the PMS um, software just press an opt-out button basically and we don't take that patient data so if you're a vet in the room you're thinking can I contribute can I can I join in with this so we're already working with lots of different practice management software systems 
There are three I can mention by name, VET1, Telios, and MVS, VETCOM. There are two more practice management software systems we're in development with at the moment. I can't mention them by name just yet. There are four more um, practice management software systems that have expressed a strong interest, and we're in the early stages of negotiating with them. And over 70 veterinary practices already signed up to be really, really happy to be part of this and to contribute data. If you're a vet in practice and you don't use one of those three and you think you might not use the mystery, any of the mystery six, then do come and talk to us because we can go and talk to the PMS providers. Um, a lot of the, um, the PMSs we're now working with, we're working with as a direct result of vets in practice saying, we want to be involved in research. And we go to the PMS and say, your vets want to be involved in research. And the PMS providers say, well, of course, of course we want to be involved, of course we want to join in. Um, so not working with one of these systems is not a barrier to being involved. So yeah, when we find a vet practice that's keen to contribute, um, we discuss with the PMS um, we exchange the technical detail, which is very straightforward. Um, we visit the veterinary practices individually. So um, for, for Telios and Vet1, I spent quite a lot of time driving around the country, going to their, their veterinary practices and saying, you know, introducing myself, introducing the centre, introducing the work that we do, um, and taking biscuits. That usually helps. Um, and saying, this is the kind of stuff that we're interested in doing. This is the kind of data we'd like for research. And they have all been really, really positive and really supportive. But we definitely would have a very personal relationship with the veterinary practices, we're happy to show up, introduce ourselves um, and talk to them um, so that we're not some sort of nameless, faceless institute just taking things from them. Um, and definitely talk to practices as well about the ways that we can help them so the data we're taking can be fed back to them and what will be most useful to them. Um, and that picture again of our network of practices contributing data and us sending data back to them. So as Steve Budsberg said on Tuesday, become part of the solution, get involved. If you're a vet in practice, if you're working in a practice management software system, or if you're a researcher, we'd really love to hear from you. So here's a short survey, really, really short survey. It literally just asks for your name and contact details and whether you're interested in joining us or you're interested in finding out more. I've only put an expiry date on there for people viewing this presentation after the date of the conference. So it's not that the 31st of December is the last time you can join us, not at all. Um, but do have a look at there, register your interest, or email us at the centre anytime you want to be involved. Little plug, um, you've probably seen this slide a few times now. Um, if you're interested in uh, getting some more skills, learning ways to use an evidence-based approach in your practice, we've got this modular course starting next year. So again, email us at the centre or have a look at the website to find out more. Massive thanks to uh, my supervisors, uh, Rachel Marnie and Richard Eames, um, and to Philip Quinlan from ADAC, who facilitates all of the beautiful tech stuff around the database for us um, and troubleshoots things for us and is absolutely brilliant. Everyone who works with us at the centre, all the practices and vets and nurses and owners who we work with, and all the supporters of our research, of which there are very many. Get involved. Be part of the solution. Thanks very much. I'd love to take any questions. Thank you.